In 1949, the devil came to St. Louis, or at least some version of him did, according to the stories, newspaper accounts, eyewitness testimonies, and a terrifying mishmash of legends that have been told and retold over the last 70 years. The events of the St. Louis exorcism have inspired books, documentaries, and even one very famous horror film. And while it is, without a doubt, the greatest unsolved mystery in the city's history, it's also become such a strange mixture of fiction and fact that it's hard to know where truth ends and fantasy begins. With this series within a series of the podcast, we're hoping to fix that. This is part two of our look into the St. Louis exorcism story. So if you're joining us for the first time, we suggest that you go back to episode 29, where the story begins. Everything about this story is confusing enough, and we don't want to make it any worse by having you start in the middle. Our plan is to try and get to the bottom of this mysterious story, even with all the unanswered questions that have been left behind. I first began researching this story in the early 1990s and went on to write three different editions of a book on the case. And my intent has always been to separate truth from fiction. What part of the story that so many of us have come to know is wishful thinking and what part of it really took place? What really happened to a Maryland family that convinced them to uproot their lives and move halfway across the country in a search for answers? And what horrifying events occurred in St. Louis that left an impression that's still being felt today? And finally, was Robbie Doe really possessed by a demon? We've gathered the evidence and we're going to present it to you with this series so that you can decide for yourself if you want to believe the story of the St. Louis exorcism or not. All that we ask is that you keep an open mind and then decide what you think happened in 1949 after you've heard all the evidence. It's a strange story, it's a confusing one, and as I've said before, it's pretty damn scary. These are episodes of the podcast that will have you listening with the lights on. Supernatural or not, something happened to that young boy and his family in 1949. In the episodes ahead, we'll try and figure out just what that something was. Prepare yourself because these episodes are going to be like nothing you've ever heard before. Prepare to be disturbed by what you're going to hear. Prepare to be frightened. You may tell yourself, this is only a podcast. But remember, this story is true. And it happened right here in St. Louis. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River.
On Saturday, March 5th, 1949, shortly after being discharged from the hospital and being pronounced normal by doctors, Robbie boarded a train to St. Louis with his parents. The family was taken in by relatives in Belnor, which is located on the northwest side of the greater St. Louis area. Here, the boy's mother hoped that he might be freed from the strange and horrifying events. For those listeners who don't believe that anything out of the ordinary was occurring in this case aside from overactive imaginations and silly superstition, you may want to consider the trip to St. Louis itself as evidence of something strange, supernatural or not, and that something strange was taking place. The fact that Robbie's parents would uproot the boy from his home, his father would travel back and forth between Maryland and Missouri jeopardizing his employment, and they would travel halfway across the country in a last-ditch effort to find help is suggestive, if not downright convincing, that terrible things were indeed happening. The only thing dividing Robbie's relatives in St. Louis was religion. Some of them were Catholic and some of them were Lutheran, but all of them loved Robbie and his parents and wanted to do anything they could to help. They spent their first night in Normandy, another St. Louis suburb near Belnor, at the home of Robbie's aunt. They were a Lutheran family and had spoken to their minister in advance of the family's arrival. Their minister did not even take the initiative of Reverend Schultz. He didn't want anything to do with the situation. Like Reverend Schultz, he suggested they talk to a Catholic priest because, you know, the Catholics know about these things. Any hope that Robbie's troubles had stayed behind in Maryland was shattered on the first night. A heavy bed moved about three feet under its own power at one point in the evening and more red marks and letters appeared on Robbie's skin. The priest's diary noted that it was a fitful night for everyone, especially Robbie. All of those present in the house were exhausted and for Robbie's relatives, it was their first chance to see the phenomena they'd only heard about up until this point and they were terrified. After the warning from their minister, the strange events must have convinced them to move Robbie somewhere else. On Tuesday, March 8th, Robbie and his family moved to the home of Robbie's uncle, his father's brother, and nearby Belnor. The house, located in the 8400 block of Roanoke Drive, was occupied by Robbie's uncle, his aunt, and two cousins. One of them, a young boy, was about Robbie's age, and his sister was a student at St. Louis University, a Catholic institution. Like his brother, Robbie's uncle was born into the Catholic Church, but was not a practicing Catholic. His wife was a devout churchgoer, though, and both children were raised Catholic. They'd already heard the stories, and while nervous, were happy to open their home to Robbie and his parents. The first afternoon passed with relative calm. Robbie seemed content and happy to see his aunt and uncle. When his cousin came home from school, the two boys played together all afternoon. After cleaning up the kitchen after dinner and sending the boys off to play, the four adults sat down together and began discussing the situation. After an entire day that was free of the strange happenings, Robbie's parents began to consider making his stay in St. Louis a lengthy one. His mother asked her sister-in-law about the possibility of enrolling Robbie at his cousin's school. Almost as soon as she said this, though, the adults heard Robbie let out a sharp cry from the other room. When his mother walked into the room, he was looking at her coldly, almost with an expression of anger on his face. Then he grimaced and slowly lifted the bottom of his shirt. The words, no school, could be seen scratched into his chest. The word no would also later appear on his wrists and his legs. His parents, filled with fear, never mentioned the idea of Robbie starting school in St. Louis again. Later that night, Robbie went to bed in his cousin's room. The boys who'd spent many overnight visits with one another over the years seemed fine as their parents tucked them in. 
Soon, the room was quiet and remained that way for the next hour or so. Their parents were breathing a sigh of relief when strange sounds suddenly started coming from the bedroom, followed by a cry of surprise from Robbie's cousin. The four adults rushed into the bedroom and heard weird scratching sounds coming from the mattress the boys were laying on. The boys were on their backs on the bed, frightened but motionless, as the mattress furiously slammed up and down. The bed itself lurched back and forth, sliding forward across the room. Robbie's cousin would later report that he'd seen a stool that was sitting near the bed go flying across the bedroom a few seconds before the mattress started moving. Robbie's aunt and uncle were as terrified as their son, but to Robbie's parents, it was more of the same thing they'd been experiencing in Maryland. They were at a complete loss as to what to do now. Fortunately though, Robbie's older cousin had an idea of her own. As mentioned, she was enrolled at St. Louis University, and when she heard about what had happened in her brother's bedroom, she suggested that she speak to one of the Jesuit teachers at the university. Robbie's parents agreed, and for what was truly the first time Aside from a few prayers and suggestions from Father Hughes, the Catholic Church was brought into the story. The next day, Robbie's cousin arranged a meeting with her favorite teacher, Father Raymond J. Bishop, the 43-year-old head of the Department of Education and an instructor of prospective teachers, which Robbie's cousin planned to be. Father Bishop was regarded as a good listener, genial man, and a popular teacher who always had time for his students. Father Bishop listened carefully to everything that the young woman told him, from the incidents in Maryland to the strange happenings that occurred over the course of just two days while Robbie was in St. Louis. Her concerns were not only for Robbie, but for her own family too. She also told him of the opinions expressed by the Lutheran ministers about Robbie possibly being possessed. Whatever Bishop thought of the strange stories, he kept his opinions to himself. If Robbie was truly possessed, there were certain signs that he would have to see. He would need to see the boy, but he would also have to confer with other Jesuits as well. He told her he took her account very seriously and that he would get back to her as soon as possible. Father Bishop then sought out Father Lawrence J. Kinney, another Jesuit who was well known for his warmth and wisdom. Kinney was in his 90s by this time and had just recently retired as a professor of history. He was a confessor to many of the priests in the Jesuit community and Bishop knew that he had been around long enough to have experienced just about everything imaginable. After hearing what Bishop had been told by Robbie's cousin, Kenny could understand the concerns about the boy being possessed. He urged a meeting with Father Paul Reinert, the president of St. Louis University. The case of Robbie Doe was now firmly in the hands of the Jesuits, who had long been considered the intellectual arm of the Catholic Church. Founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius Loyola, they have often been at odds with the more conservative elements of the church. They excelled in missionary work, education, science, and exploration. At one time, they were known as the schoolmasters of Europe, not only because of their schools and universities, but also for their acclaim as scholars and for the thousands of textbooks that they composed. By 1949, they had opened hundreds of additional schools and universities around the world, including St. Louis University. Father Bishop and Father Kenny made an appointment to see Father Reinhardt just within days of hearing about Robbie's ordeal. Unfortunately for the university president, a case of possible possession could not have come at a worse time. The university was currently working to help desegregate St. Louis schools and the various Catholic parishes in the city. This was not a popular subject at the time, and the Jesuits had clashed with the Most Reverend Joseph Ritter, Archbishop of St. Louis. The Jesuits had been blamed for coercing the Archbishop into desegregating the diocese when they began allowing African-American students to enroll at St. Louis University in 1944. By 1949, though, the Jesuits and the Archbishop were at peace with one another. All of that could unravel around Robbie's case. 
If Father Bishop's story was true and this turned out to be a case of demonic possession, then Reinert would have to deal with Archbishop Ritter on the matter of an exorcism. Permission would have to be granted to the Jesuits and Reinert was not sure he wanted to broach the subject at such a volatile time. There was an uneasy truce between the university and the archdiocese and while the churches had been desegregated, the Jesuits were still at work trying to get the rest of the city desegregated too. While Ritter was in favor of desegregation, he might not necessarily be in favor of the attention that the Jesuits were bringing to the church. He wondered what effect an exorcism might have on the Jesuits' relationship with Ritter, and he also wondered what the public might think about the Jesuits who wanted African Americans treated equally in St. Louis, resurrecting superstitious nonsense like an exorcism in these modern times. Reiner was an administrator, and he didn't handle spiritual matters like this, so as it turned out, he had a way to stay out of the mess. If there was to be an exorcism, then Father Bishop would have to apply for permission from Archbishop Ritter himself. Reinert didn't have to be involved, although he did meet with Fathers Bishop and Kinney to discuss the matter at great length. Father Bishop did not record what Reiner said to him, but he did advise him not to go into the situation blindly. He suggested that Bishop go to the house, offer a priestly blessing, and find out for himself what was going on. After that, he could get back in touch with Reinert and they would decide what to do next. It should be mentioned at this point that Father Bishop had already gone above and beyond what he was required to do in the case. Bishop could have easily told Robbie's cousin that she should go speak to a priest in her parish, but he didn't. The Jesuits felt they had a spiritual responsibility to help the girl and to help Robbie as well. Bishop was determined to see this thing through to the end. Father Raymond Bishop was born to German immigrants in Glencoe, Minnesota and attended parochial school before going on to Glencoe Public High School. After graduation, he decided to become a teacher and enrolled in a year-long training program, which he completed with high honors. He spent the next year teaching in rural Minnesota schools, but for some reason chose not to stay with it. He entered the University of Minnesota to become a pharmacist, but he wouldn't stay on that course either. While in college, he decided to change his life and become a Jesuit priest. Bishop entered the Society of Jesus in 1927. After a few months of probation, he began a two-year program devoted to prayer and meditation with simple, humble chores. He lived in silence each day, which was timed by bells that called him to mass, to meditation, classes, meals, and everything else he did each day. At the end of the two years, he took vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty, and officially became a member of the Society of Jesus. After that, he spent the next 11 years in study at the St. Stanislaus Cemetery near Florissant, Missouri. He studied Greek and Latin for two years and then philosophy for the next three. All of his classes were in Latin, as were the debates that were staged to test the student's knowledge and his ability to think quickly. Bishop lived a life of study, isolation, and humility and only left the seminary after his seventh year when he was assigned a teaching position at the Jesuit High School operated by St. Louis University. He then spent four years in theology classes and at the end of his third year was ordained as a Jesuit priest. By this time, Bishop had been in the society for 13 years and he began a sort of internship that was devoted to priestly rather than scholarly work. At the end of that period, he was assigned to Rockhurst College in Kansas City, where he became the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. This position was short-lived, however, when the Director of Education at St. Louis University became gravely ill. Bishop was ordered to St. Louis to assist the man, but he died soon after, and Bishop took over the position. He'd been head of the department for almost seven years when the case of Robbie Doe was brought to him by a worried and scared young woman. On the morning after his meeting with Reinert, 
Father Bishop called Robbie's cousin and told her that he wanted to see the boy as soon as possible. On the evening of March 9th, a member of the family picked up Bishop at the university and drove him to their home on Roanoke Drive. It was a cool, quiet evening when Father Bishop arrived at the two-story brick house in Belnor. Robbie's cousin introduced Bishop to her parents and then led him into the front room so that he could meet Robbie's parents. They quickly warmed up to the kind, compassionate priest and began telling him about what had been happening to their son. Bishop questioned them cautiously, looking for any inconsistencies in their story and taking pages of notes. After speaking with the parents for quite some time, Father Bishop then sat down alone with Robbie. He found him to be, according to his account, a quiet boy and one who was not very athletic. Robbie was fond of comic books, but otherwise was not much of a reader. He was intelligent, but Bishop understood he was usually bored with school and did not excel at his studies. He was, Bishop believed, not the type of boy who made trouble for his parents. He'd worked with young people for many years and he knew a troublemaker when he met one. He did not believe that Robbie was. He was socially introverted, but otherwise a normal kid, which is why what Robbie's parents said bothered him so much. They explained that Robbie had become violent and disagreeable, which was so unlike his previous personality. He seemed like a different person, like he gained a new personality. Comments like this put Father Bishop on alert. Robbie's parents knew nothing of possession, and yet they were describing what was a textbook example of the early stages of the phenomenon. He was disturbed by what they told him, but he tried not to show it. After talking with Robbie, Father Bishop went from room to room of the Roanoke Drive house and blessed each one of them, offering prayers in Latin and gesturing the sign of the cross with his right hand. He also sprinkled holy water as he gave his blessing. He spent extra time in the bedroom that Robbie was using, giving it a special blessing that he repeated over Robbie's bed. This ritual of the priestly blessing that Father Reinhardt had advised Bishop to give it was sort of a low-level exorcism against what the Jesuits called infestation which was the mildest form of diabolical activity. The strange happenings that Robbie's family reported, from the scratching in the walls to the shaking bed, seemed to indicate that entities were manifesting around Robbie. These spirits could often be countered by this mild sort of exorcism, which was carried out to cleanse a place rather than a person. But even while he was doing this, Father Bishop might have suspected that this type of exorcism would be in vain. Robbie was plagued by strange events no matter where he went, and blessing the house would really make no difference. It was possible that the situation had already progressed beyond the point of infestation and on to the next stage, known as obsession. In that stage, subjects are tormented by a demon, but not actually possessed by it. The scratching and thumping in Robbie's house in Maryland would have been signs of the first stage. The scratches on Robbie's body, which Bishop had heard about but had not yet seen himself, indicated the second stage, which was obsession. What had not yet appeared were signs of the third stage, actual possession. 
Bishop also brought a religious relic with him to the home, which he attached to Robbie's pillow with a safety pin. It was a cloth pouch that contained a small bit of material in a glass case. The material was a tiny fragment that was a second-class relic of St. Margaret Mary. A second-class relic is a piece of something that was touched by the saint, like clothing or wood. A first-class relic would be a chip of bone or a lock of hair from the actual saint's body. Jesuits were especially devoted to St. Margaret Mary, a French nun, because her spiritual advisor had been a Jesuit. He encouraged her when, against initial opposition from the church, she began what became a worldwide devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. By attaching this relic to Robbie's pillow, Father Bishop was asking for the intervention of a woman who claimed to have had a mystical encounter with Jesus himself. She said that Jesus had appeared before her, placed her heart inside of his own, and then drew it out like a burning heart-shaped flame. Catholic immigrants brought the practice of revering the Sacred Heart to America. Countless homes and churches across the country have images hanging inside of them with Jesus revealing his flaming, bleeding heart. When it was time for Robbie to go to bed that night, he went upstairs to the room that Bishop had blessed. A few minutes later, Father Bishop went in the room and told him good night. They talked for a few minutes and then Bishop left with Robbie chuckling over some small joke. He went back downstairs and was preparing to leave when all of the sudden they all heard something upstairs. The adults listened for a moment and then were stunned by the sounds of thumping and banging on the second floor. When Robbie began screaming, all of them ran for the stairs. Father Bishop was shocked by what he saw when he entered the door of Robbie's bedroom. He later wrote of it in the priest's diary. Robbie was perfectly still on the bed and was not moving. Regardless, the mattress on the bed jerked back and forth and thumped up and down without any logical explanation. It only stopped when Father Bishop sprinkled holy water on it. Moments later, though, it began again. Robbie cried out in pain, and when his mother pulled back the bed covers and lifted his pajama shirt, they all saw red zigzagging lines on his stomach. According to Bishop, Robbie had been in clear view of at least six witnesses during this entire time, and no one had seen him create the scratches himself and had seen no movement that could have caused the marks to appear. The mattress continued to shake in spurts until about 11.15, and then it stopped moving. Robbie was at peace for the rest of the night, and his relatives later said it was the most peaceful night since Robbie and his parents had come to St. Louis. The next day, March 10th, a Thursday, Bishop took his concerns about the case to one of his closest friends, Father William S. Bowdern. He told him about what he had heard and seen at the house on Roanoke Drive, and Bowdern listened intently. Bowdern was not on the faculty of St. Louis University, and like most Jesuits, he was not a teacher. In 1949, he was the pastor of the St. Francis Xavier Church, located at the corner of Grand and Lindell. It was a busy church at the time with a full schedule of baptisms, weddings, funerals, and wakes. He had new Jesuit priests who served as his assistants, but Bowdern carried most of the load. He had many years of experience dealing with people and their problems, and he listened carefully to the story that Bishop told him. In 1949, Bowdern was 52 years old and was a native of St. Louis. He had joined the Society of Jesus when he was 17 after completing high school at the St. Louis University School. He was a short and stocky man with black hair and a square jaw and had a reputation for keeping his nerve. After his ordination, he had been made principal of the high school at St. Mary's College in Kansas, where he'd also been a teacher during his years of Jesuit study. He moved on to the St. Louis University High School, where he also became principal, and then was anointed rector of the Campion Jesuit High in Wisconsin. 
1942, though, he began a four-year stint as a U.S. Army chaplain, serving in war-torn Europe and on the battlefields of China, Burma, and India. He left the Army in 1946 and became pastor of the St. Francis Xavier Church. His no-nonsense approach as a priest who had seen the horror of war, as well as his compassionate nature, must have appealed to Bishop and caused him to seek out Bowdern about Robbie's case. He needed the advice of his friend, and he also needed counsel from a man who was often described as being totally fearless. After what he'd seen, someone fearless was exactly what Father Bishop needed. While Father Bishop was conferring with his friend about the situation, Robbie and his family were continuing to deal with the bizarre manifestations on Roanoke Drive. That Thursday passed uneventfully, but when Robbie went to bed that night, the noises started again. The sound of scratching filled the bedroom and thumping sounds like those made by stomping feet could be heard throughout the house. A little later, the mattress began to shake and bump again, and the relic of St. Margaret Mary was thrown across the room. Robbie swore he'd never touched it. The clasp on the safety pin he claimed, and his mother agreed, apparently opened by itself and came off the pillow. On Friday, Robbie's cousin stopped in at Father Bishop's office and told him about what had occurred the night before. He told her that he would arrange to return to the house that night and would bring Father Bowder with him. Robbie's uncle picked up both men at the St. Francis Xavier Church that evening, just after 10 p.m. The visit had to be planned so late in the evening because Father Bowdern was extremely busy with an exhaustive novena that consisted of nine days of special devotions at the church, leaving him nearly exhausted. Each day there had been prayer services at noon, in the afternoon, at the dinner hour, and then again at 9 p.m. Bowdern officiated during all of them, giving a homily at each service. The major service, complete with choir, was held at 9 p.m. that Friday night. The church was packed for the end of the novena, which was in honor of the church's patron saint, Francis Xavier. When the two priests left the church that night, Bowdern brought with him two of the parish's most valuable relics, a first-class relic of St. Francis Xavier and a collective relic from a group of saints that were known as the North American Martyrs. The two priests arrived at the house around 10.30 p.m. and Bishop introduced Bowdern, who told Robbie's family that he planned to offer a priestly blessing. His real agenda, however, was to sit down and talk with Robbie and see what he could learn from the boy. He had many years of experience dealing with boys around Robbie's age thanks to his positions at high schools and as the pastor of the church. He chatted with the young man for about a half hour or so and asked him a number of questions about what had been taking place. He never appeared judgmental and he avoided expressing any real opinions or ideas about what was occurring. Bowdern thanked Robbie and shook hands with him in an adult manner and then his mother sent the boy upstairs to get ready for bed. His mother and father tucked him in just a little after 11 p.m. but a few minutes later, he was already crying for help. The priests, Robbie's parents, his cousin, and her parents all ran up the stairs to the room where Robbie could be heard calling out. When they crowded into the room, they found him sitting up, his face white. On other nights when strange events had occurred, Robbie had seemed almost in a trance, unaware of what was going on around him. On this night, though, he seemed like a scared little boy. He felt some sort of force in the room, he told the adults. The pen on the relic of St. Margaret Mary had opened again and had once more sailed across the room. It struck a mirror with a solid snap, but the glass didn't break. 
Robbie held up his arm for them to look at and they all noticed the appearance of two scratches on his outer forearm that made the sign of a cross. Father Bowdern, although likely a little surprised by what he'd seen, calmly dealt with the situation in the way he knew best. He quietly read the Novena Prayer of St. Francis Xavier and then blessed Robbie by moving the Xavier relic over him in the sign of a cross. Bowdern then pinned the other relic he'd brought with him to Robbie's pillow right next to the relic of St. Margaret Mary. This time, there was no shaking of the bed or weird scratching noises. Robbie seemed at peace now, and so everyone wished him a good night and returned to the downstairs living room. It was at this point that Father Bishop began collecting the facts of the case from everyone who was present. He labeled his file case study and began the initial notes that would become the priest's diary that's been mentioned several times already. Father Bishop did most of the questioning as he detailed the background of the case. Occasionally, Father Bowdern chimed in with a question or two. Bishop wrote down everything Robbie's parents told him, writing down events that dated all the way back to the beginnings of the case in January. After filling a number of pages with notes, the two priests prepared to leave. Before they could, though, the entire group heard a crashing sound coming from upstairs. They rushed back up the steps to Robbie's room. The boy explained he'd been dozing off when a bottle of holy water left by Father Bishop on Wednesday flew off the table next to Robbie's bed. It soared across the room and landed hard on the wooden floor, but it didn't break. Without saying a word, Father Bowdern removed a rosary from his pocket and draped it around Robbie's neck. He stood on one side of the bed and motioned Father Bishop to the other side. Together, they began to recite the rosary, and when they were finished, Bowdern sat down and began to tell Robbie about three children about Robbie's age, who had a remarkable experience at Fatima in Portugal in 1917. His soft voice soothed the boy, relaying the story of how the young people had seen a vision of a beautiful woman, the mother of Jesus, and the Mary, and the Hail Mary prayers the priests had just recited. Prayers that were offered up to Mary, Father Bowdern explained, reached Jesus, and he responded to the prayers. The simple story seemed to calm Robbie down, and he sleepily wished Father Bowdern and his silent audience good night. Bowdern and Bishop both blessed the boy one last time, and then at nearly 1 a.m., Robbie's uncle drove them back to campus. The strange night finally seemed to be over. It seemed to be, but it wasn't. The night at the house on Roanoke Drive was just getting started. A few minutes after Robbie's uncle left to drive the priest back to St. Louis University, the remaining adults heard the sound of something heavy scraping across the floor of Robbie's bedroom. They hurriedly climbed the staircase once more. The knob twisted, but the bedroom door immediately banged into something that was directly on the other side of it. Robbie's father put his shoulder to the door and heaved against the wooden panel. It slowly edged open, and he was startled to find that the door had been blocked by a heavy bookcase. It had been slammed up against the door and had somehow dragged itself from the far side of the room. Robbie's father was barely able to move it out of the way to gain access to the bedroom. He believed that it was unlikely, if not impossible, that Robbie could have moved the bookcase by himself as some sort of prank. Robbie did not appear to have left the bed. He was sitting up, startled by their entrance, and he looked dazed and confused about what was occurring. The first thing his mother noticed about the room was that a stool that had been next to the head of the bed was now turned upside down at the foot of it. She pushed her way into the room and lay down next to her son, hoping to comfort him. His aunt and cousin wrestled the bookcase back to its place along the wall and put the stool back where it belonged. Finally, a few minutes later, everyone left but Robbie's mother. Exhausted and scared, she laid down next to her son and held the boy until he fell asleep. But sleep would not come for the anxious parent. She lay there in the dark for some time and then suddenly was aware of some sort of force in the room with them. 
The stool that was sitting next to the bed fell over with a loud crack. The noise awakened Robbie, and he later said that he felt something moving under his pillow. It was the crucifix that Father Bowdern had pinned there. It had come undone and was slithering under the bed sheets. In a panic, Robbie reached for the St. Margaret Mary relic, and while the safety pin was still there and in place, the relic had vanished. Moments later, the shaking and the scratching in the mattress began. It quivered only slightly at first and then became more violent. The scratching became louder and louder and the mattress began to slam up and down against the bed frame, creating a terrifying and chaotic racket. Robbie's mother sprang out of bed and took her son with her. They fled from the room just as the others were coming up the stairs to see what was making all the noise. They could hear the banging and thudding and scratching from downstairs and were not surprised to see Robbie and his mother come flying down the staircase. The entire family spent the remainder of the night wrapped in blankets on the floor and on the furniture in the living room. What was happening to Robbie? No one knew that the nightmare, as bad as it already seemed, was just beginning. On Saturday afternoon, Robbie's cousin visited Father Bishop and told him of the things that she'd seen and heard the night before. She sat down with him for a time and expressed her worries about what was happening. Bishop promised her he would not let the situation rest. And now that Father Bowdern had completed the novena at his church, he would be able to devote more time to the situation as well. The two men already realized that demonic possession was a grim reality they might have to face. However, before they reached that point, there was investigation and research that had to be done. It cannot be denied that all of the incidents that had occurred in St. Louis, including the moving of the wooden bookcase, could have been caused by Robbie. Of course, just because he could have accomplished these things did not mean that he did, simply that he could have. Robbie could have been perpetrating an elaborate hoax, or he could have been mentally ill, perhaps even on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Tex warned a prospective exorcist that he should not believe too readily that a person is possessed by an evil spirit. He could be disturbed instead. Did Robbie really meet the conditions for being possessed? Well, there are many who believe that Robbie's case, chronicled by his family and carefully recorded by Father Bishop, showed a steady progression toward diabolical possession. The case began with the infestation in Maryland, the strange poltergeist activity that revolved around the boy, and then went on to obsession when Robbie began to be scratched and marked. After that, following the prescribed sequence of events would be a full-fledged possession. Did Bishop and Bowdern believe they could stop the progression before things got worse? Well, we'll never know, because unfortunately there's no reliable, clear-cut information about how the decision was reached by Bowdern and Bishop to request an exorcism for Robbie. According to church doctrine, there are a number of different conditions that have to be met to show that someone is truly possessed, including speaking in foreign tongues and revealing information that he had no way of knowing. Well, whether or not these conditions were met is not for us to say or judge, but regardless, Bowdern and Bishop went to Archbishop Joseph E. Ritter for permission to perform an exorcism on March 14th. The Jesuits had no idea how Ritter would respond to the request, but surprisingly, he promptly agreed. And from that point, the St. Louis exorcism began. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. 
then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words how, how... Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast. Would it bother you if I ate popcorn Damn while you were doing this? Yeah. I mean, could this that be like my new thing? This is going to be a new... While we're doing it? Because I mean, we drink while we're doing it, but I wonder if it would be a problem if I ate. But I can eat like cereal or yeah, something. Yeah, no, That'd the, be cool. the crunchier, the better. Oh, that, <laughs> okay. That'll be great. I'm having a snack. So. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. This is new thing. Okay. <laughs> I don't see. I don't trust it. I don't trust <laughs> it. So I'm stressed out already. <laughs> As soon as I started talking, I saw you just kind of like sh- <laughs> shit-eating grin. Just okay. Yeah, are you just no, waiting to crunch? Are you no, waiting to I'm crunch? Not. I'm not. I was waiting. Welcome to American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, Talk and too loud. all things paranormal. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> okay, uh, I I really will stop. All right. All right. Mm. So I just. From now on, I okay, remember. Let me, let me finish got, this you bite. Got, you got to get two of them out of your system. Yeah, I and do. Then, I okay, do. that's good okay. to know. <clears throat> I'm putting away the popcorn. Okay. I'm going to put it away. If you're putting that away, can you grab that bottle of wine, actually? Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 30, which is the 17th episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Who is doing his best to irritate you. As I say, can we add comedian to that list now? (laughs) (laughs) I was on a popcorn kick today. I apologize. Yeah, and last week, too, I guess. Well, last week wasn't popcorn. I think it was last week I was just trying to irritate you. Right. No, we're good. You succeeded. Yeah. Awesome. I know. 
All right. Um, do we want to talk about where we're recording from? Sure. Oh, yeah. We are at the Best Western Premiere, which is kind of our home away from home here in Alton, Illinois. Uh, we spend a lot of time here when we're here doing events, and this is also the home of the Haunted America Conference, which is coming up June 22nd and 23rd, or is it 21st and 22nd? Don't I don't know. know. It's that weekend. It's the third weekend in June 2019. So we do have some preliminary information up on the website now. And uh, later this month, I'll be putting up all of the events, all the after hours stuff, all the speakers. Everything will go up later this month. So awesome. We're excited about it already. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I always I, do. I don't know so. what I'm going to do this year, but I got a lot of great ghost stories last yeah. year. Oh, I'll, I know. I'll do something again. I but yeah, I, we should do something. Might be similar, but uh, we'll do something yeah. fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Um, I know that the, uh, speaking of kind of what you did, I know that the folks who at Singular Fortian are bringing like a, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's sort of like a circus tent situation. They're bringing okay. it and they're going to record people's personal accounts um, on video. Oh, they're one up in me. Yeah, yeah. They moved uh, up from podcast to video. That's fair. Uh, so for their YouTube channel, but um they, uh, they've got some really cool ideas, and they're working on a, a really cool design for the tent and everything. So they'll have a whole corner of the, of the vendor room this year to use for their, their setup. It should be pretty cool. So. Now, now i got to come up with a new shtick. You know, to get yeah, well, to, we'll we'll, we'll come up with something between now and then. Yeah. So because we'll uh, we're not gonna do we're not gonna attempt a live broadcast or live recording this year. I don't think. Yeah. We tried that last year, didn't work so well. We're gonna stick with Dead of Winter. I think. That's yeah, that's fair for our live recording. I mean, we'll be there. I mean, the the podcast will be at the conference, of course. But I think Dead of Winter we're going to do, which is February 9th, We're going to do our. Um, live show again like we did last year that was a lot of fun yeah I, I really enjoyed that so we're gonna put that something together for that so actually we we actually as i was telling cody i said it's um it's october it's finally halloween season yeah you know, tours are in full swing um by the time you hear this all the tours in decatur will be completely sold out so we're all the tours in carlinville will be completely sold out um the we still have tours in chicago was we a lot of buses up there uh, but uh, Alton, um, a lot of that, like for this weekend while we're recording, completely sold out already. Uh, so a lot of things are filling up. So if there's anything left and you were thinking that you wanted to take a tour this year, you better get on it by the time you hear this episode and see what's left. But um, so anyway, my point was I was telling Cody that, you know, it's October. And so as soon as October gets here, we start planning all our winter stuff. So <laughs> no rest for the wicked. No, there isn't. So we're we're actually doing uh, all of our Ghosts of the River Road tours for the winter are now up on the website at AltonHauntings.com. Uh, Lisa and I do those, and that is a that's a really fun tour. You were with us last weekend. Yeah, we did it. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun tour, and uh, that's one that we can do all year round because it's you know weather wise weather weather seems to always be permitting for right. that one, uh, but. November the 30th and December 1st, we're doing two Holiday Spirits events. On Friday night, November 30th, we're going to do one of our Dinner and Spirits uh, dinner tours with Bluff City and do the, the two ghost hunts that go along with that. And then on December the 1st, we're going to do another ghost hunt. Um, I'm going to be hosting a ghost hunt at the Mineral Springs Hotel, uh, which we... Uh, sold out like a month in advance last time right so and then we're doing it 
tonight. We are, as, as we're recording this, we're actually going to be doing that tonight. Yes. Um, and then we've got another one set for December 1st, so that should be fun. And then one other winter event in January, I believe it's the 12th, uh, but check the website on that. Um, we're doing an event that's called the even, An Evening with the Axeman. And we're actually doing a dinner at the Mineral Springs, followed by a presentation on the Midwest axe murders of the early 19-teens, including Velisca. The very haunted Velisca axe murders uh, was kind of like the main event of all of these murders that took place at that time. And for those of you who may have read the book I did, Murdered in Their Beds, you know I've got kind of a unique perspective, but I have added to that. This presentation will include some things that are not in the book. Uh, so anyway, hope you can join us for that. I'm looking forward, that's gonna be fun. So yeah, there's really something looking forward really to unique about ax murders too. I know. And just, m- I know. I, it's, they're weird, yeah. I mean. The whole thing, well, and you know, when I was putting together Murdered in Their Beds, I was, I was going through looking at other axe murders, just thinking, how do I put this together as a kind of a sociological phenomenon of yeah. the time? Because, I mean, a lot of people were murdered with axes because it was a very handy, everybody had one. Yeah. So it was a convenient weapon of choice for a lot of people. And that's when I started looking at the, and I kept finding, I found like this series of murders that were exactly the same mm-hmm. before Velisca and a couple after Velisca. Um, that were just identical. I mean, like literally identical murders. And that was what I put that together. And now there's a guy who's done another book that got put out by a, you know, big name press ah. and everything. And I mean, he references me a lot in his book, but yeah, you better. still, I know, but that's not the point. The point is, is that, you know, right. you know late to the, late to the train, so to speak, but that's okay. It's all right. So well, next time you solve a cold case, tell me, we'll get it yeah, out we, online we need to try to do something. Yeah. Well, there were, when, when I put that book out, I don't think there were podcasts. So ah. yeah, it wasn't anything we could have talked about early. So yeah. Wouldn't have done any good. But Got anyway, it. join well, us January 12th for that. So, But anyway, just check the website. Just go to AmericanHauntings.net, uh, and uh, all this stuff is on there. So, Yeah, and I do actually have one other update I haven't told you about. Oh, okay. Um, but, so we did the River Road tour yes. um, last week, and then uh, my girlfriend Leah, her grandmother, passed away. Mm-hmm. And we were at the funeral, and her grandmother um, was – Ogallala Sioux, I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but her name was Two Star Eagle, and her husband uh, owned a sign company, Arrow Signs, okay. and they were uh, driving down the river road at one point, and she said, you need to paint the Piasol bird back up on the bluffs where it was, and she kept persisting and kept persisting and told him, you need to do this, and finally his company did it and put it back up on the oh, bluff yeah. some years ago. Yeah. Um, and so we had never heard that story, but there was a newspaper article that one oh, of cool. the cousins yeah, found. Yeah, I remember when I was, I lived here when they repainted that. Yeah. The and I just yeah. thought, um, it was just a nice, it was a nice oh, story cool. and it was very yeah. appropriate for, you know, what we had just yeah, done. Yeah. Um, so rest in peace, but I uh, just kind of wanted to mention, I thought you'd think yeah, that's pretty no, cool. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Okay, well, before we dive in, I promised Lisa that she could have her 10 seconds again. So, ready and go. I'm Lisa. Hi. 10 seconds. Patreon. Small donation. You've got mail. T-shirts. Spooky books. Free events. Bonus content. Secret Facebook. Monthly swag. Patreon. Awesome. Uh, So, are we ready to dive in? I'm ready if you're ready. All right. 
so this is St. Louis Exorcism Part Two. I just yes. want to give like a one second so recap. Finally of, made it to St. Louis. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So this is where we <laughs> left off um, from the first part. So basically, Robbie was in the hospital between February 28th and March 3rd. We know that. And then two days later, his family boards a train for St. Louis, and here we begin. Yes. Yes. So Saturday, March 5th, 1949, family boards a train and lands with relatives in Belnor? Well, actually, uh, Normandy first. Normandy yeah, first. Yeah, they stayed with um, Robbie's mother's sister the first night, and aunt. See, they had both sides of the family had family here in St. Louis. Okay. Um, the original place that they stayed was in Normandy just for the first night, uh, and they had some, you know, activity in the house, and the family just decided that it would be better if they went somewhere else. Right. Um, they were Lutherans, though. And, so, I, and right. that's, again, that's, again, not a not a knock on the Lutherans, but the Lutherans um, did not fare well in this story, I guess. I mean, they all were skeptical, or not necessarily, well, R- Reverend Schultz was kind of skeptical of the whole thing and, and thought that, well, I can't do anything about it. You need to talk to the Catholics, and that's pretty much what, you know, this family, the family in Normandy said was, you know, hey, maybe Catholics could handle this better than we can. Got it. And sent them on to uh, Robbie's uncle's house, and that was in Belnor. Belnor. That is in Belnor. And um, that's that was Robbie's father's brother that they were staying with. Gotcha. And um, he was kind of like Robbie's dad, um, kind of a non-practicing mm-hmm. Catholic, but his wife was was very devout, kind of like Robbie's mother was. Right. So and they still had they still had the fear, even if right, they right, right, uh, even if they weren't practicing. Right. So, um, and then I'm sure that they probably, after seeing all the things that they saw, probably ended up practicing yeah. again. I'm, sure I'm they, gonna I'm say sure they after went to that. one extreme or the yeah, other. I'm yeah. gonna say we probably went the other direction when it was all over. But, um, but yes, yeah, so they moved to the house on, at Belnor on um, Roanoke Drive in Belnor. Nice. Uh, yeah, Ro- Roanoke, another creepy stuff. Um, <laughs> that's And something you brought up that uh, I think is an important point to point out here, especially for someone like myself that tends to be really skeptical about these things, regardless of what happened, I think that this it lends credibility to their fear, if nothing else, that the family uprooted their whole lives that's what I've always and moved across this. the country. That is what I've always said about this story. I don't care what you believe. Um, and you can believe that it is it was something supernatural or it wasn't, but whatever it was, it was devastating enough to this family that they, you know, moved halfway across the country. Of course, I mean, those were the days when you know the wife didn't work, but the husband did. Yeah, I mean, Robbie's dad had a had a regular job, and so he was traveling back and forth between St. Louis and and Maryland to try to keep his job. And so, I mean, he's jeopardized his employment. They've uprooted their entire family. They've moved halfway across the country and are moving in with relatives to stay. And, you know, something happened. I mean, something happened in Maryland to get them to do this. And, you know, I I don't believe that it was, you know, a prank Mm -hmm. or a hoax. Um, You know, let's, let's, let's leave it at prank. Uh, let's say that, you know, because there are people who believe that this was a prank that Robbie was playing that got out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've discussed that with people over the years. I mean, talk about talk about a prank gone awry. Yeah. I mean, by the time you're actually undergoing an exorcism, I think if you were playing a prank, that would be the time when you go, hold on, wait a minute. You know, I made all this up right. because as we'll hear beginning, 
you hear a little in this episode, but really the exorcism truly will begin in our next episode. This is not fun. This is not a lark for anybody involved, not for Robbie, not for his family, and certainly not for the priests who were involved either, because it turns into uh, quite an ordeal. And um, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll detail that a little bit more in episode three, uh, because that's when things are really going to get started. And, um, but it's, you know, it's not something where you just think that, oh, this would be funny. I'm going to do this. Right. A at some point you, you say, oh, wait a minute. You know, I was kidding. You right. Know? Yeah. He did, just he, kidding. He just didn't, kidding. He didn't, you know? uh, yes. And himself into an uh, exorcism. No, no, I don't think so either. Right. Well, so let's talk about a little bit, um, about why we think he didn't do that because of some of the terrible things that ended up happening. Uh, so can you tell me about when I believe it was to the second house they got to in Bel Noir, right. which is where the exorcism really began. In fact, right. a lot of it took place there. Okay, yeah. so so they're there and things are going well that first day, and I believe the mother brings up like maybe we can enroll him in school here. Yeah, that that's that was that's the only incident of all of this that that well not the only. I mean there are some other things too, but that was the one that always really kind of sparked my skepticism a little too out there yeah that well it wasn't even that it was just like this just seemed like something that a kid would do you know oh i, I hear him i don't want to go to school so how about if i you know scratch no school on my stomach you know what i want to know um, is if he did it to himself did he have to do it upside down well that see that's the commitment. thing that's and he didn't have much time and his cousin was there too and and, and again i'm gonna say that with all of this stuff going on if the, you know the cousin is right next to him I mean, you know, they're they're they've known each other for you know, their whole lives. They're buddies, and this kid would have said something. Yeah. After, especially after the first night when furniture is flying around the room, he would have said, "Say, hey, you know, Robbie's doing this. You know, mom, dad, Robbie is the one doing this. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, so there's that. So that's that's our that's our, you know, that's how we wipe away the skepticism. But honestly, when I heard the, you know, when I first ran across this no school thing, I thought. <laughs> Really. Right. You, you know, you, I mean, you that put was the, you put the thermometer in the hot water right. and then stick it right. in your mouth right. real quick. Exactly. You don't carve you know. yourself. Up. Right. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's a that was a weird little incident that happened. Right. And um, and again, that may be one of those things that, you know, that might be one of those things that got added to the story. I mean, mm -hmm. like the entire Father Hughes exorcism in Maryland. Yeah. You know, none of which actually happened. You know, this could have been one of those things. I mean, I. It's impossible for me to say for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the uh, because there's no corroboration on that at all. Yeah. I mean, this is just what the the, the family said happened. Right. You know, um, Father Bishop at this point, you know, was not really involved yet mm -hmm. at that point, and so the initial part of the priest diary was things that he questioned them about, mm -hmm. and as as we talk about in this episode. Um, you know, he he was he sat down with them and, and wrote down all the things that they remembered. So that would have been a story that Robbie's mom or, you know, an aunt would have passed on to him. Right. So uh, who knows? You know, there's nothing to corroborate that. Right. But, it's a fun um, story, though. It's it's interesting. Well, for it's sure. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Right. Quotation OK, well, so let's dive into things that we know happened. So uh, finally, uh, the Catholics come to town. Mm -hmm. So. Someone in the family at least meets with Father, Father Bishop, who calls Father Kenny, who calls Father Reinhardt. Right, Is right. That well, yeah, it really went step by step because Robbie's cousin um, attended St. Louis University. Right. She was studying to be a teacher, and it happened that Father Bishop was her, was the head of the Department of Education. She knew him pretty well. Was one of her teachers, and um, 
I guess he was always he was so well liked that everybody knew that you could talk to him about pretty much anything. So she went to him and said, "Listen, here's what's going on in my house." And uh, for whatever reason, I mean, he and I think I even make a note of that that he went above and beyond yeah. because this is something that he really had to get directly involved with. Mm-hmm. He he felt that he had to, but he really, I mean, technically could have said, well, you know what, you need to talk to your parish priest about right. this. Right. It really wasn't something that, you know, she kind of went over everyone's head and went to, well, it went to the Jesuits because yeah. that's that's who you go to with this kind of stuff because, you know, they're the they're the the teachers, the scientists, the, the intellectual the body, psychiatrists. Yeah. I mean, they're they are literally the psychiatrists for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you've got priests with problems, that's who they talk to are the Jesuits. I mean, these are the intellectuals. And you know, I didn't get into all the details about what happened with the Jesuits, but you know, they uh, they were disbanded for a while because the, you know it was thought that they were too smart for everyone ah. else, really, and. You know, and but yet they had always been the one who ones who had, had been, you know, kind of led the intellectual charge. I mm-hmm. mean, they're the ones who when they're telling people that, you know, oh, the you know, the earth is flat and the Jesuits are going not so much, you know. Yeah. Uh, so they had a reputation for, you know, being less conservative, I guess. Than right. People. So it was the right people for her to talk to. But but Father Bishop. You know, this wasn't something he'd ever dealt with either. So he went to talk to Father Kenny, who was in his 90s, and because he thought, well, maybe he's seen something like this. Yeah. And he took him on to see, uh, to took him on to see Father Reiner, who was head of St. Louis University at the time. And um, you know, we don't have lots of details about what was said. We only have what Father Bishop then said. Well, this is what happened. And um, but it was a messy. It was a messy time period. Yeah. in St. Louis for all this. Yeah, can I talk yeah. about that sure, a little bit? Sure. Well, I do want to say uh, Father Bishop gets a gold star. Um, also, the name <laughs> Father Bishop was kind of confusing to me for a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, but right. anyway, so regarding that messy time, so there are a couple quotes in here I want to talk about. So it said, A case of possible possession could not have come at a worse time. The Jesuits had been blamed for coercing the archbishop into desegregating the parish when they began allowing African-American students to enroll at St. Louis University in 1944. He wondered what effect an exorcism might have on the Jesuits' relationship with Ritter. And he also wondered what the public might think about the Jesuits, who wanted African-Americans treated equally in St. Louis, resurrecting superstitious nonsense like an exorcism in these modern times. So it's kind of like, first you guys want to bring African-Americans here, now you got this shit laying on me. Well, you know, um, but the the church was kind of leading the push in the late 40s in St. Louis, and um, they were— the church was very um, hesitant to get involved in the politics of what was going to need to be done to desegregate all the schools. Mm-hmm. So the Jesuits just said, yeah, well, we're not worried about it. And so then they allowed African-American students to start coming to St. Louis University. So that was the criticism is that they pushed Archbishop Archbishop Ritter into desegregating the church, the entire church, the entire diocese. Right. Um, because they did it first, and then he felt he needed to too. Even though he was in favor of it, but he didn't want to rock the boat. <laughs> this you know? was this was my idea, right? He didn't want to rock the boat, and um, but they did it. They pushed him into it, and then um, now you know you've got a couple of guys who come to him and they're going to want an exorcism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I mean again, this was 1949. This was 
no, we were we were pre-Vatican II, so there hadn't been all the sweeping changes in the church. Everybody was still using Latin for everything and that yeah. kind of thing. So there, there, we hadn't seen all these changes. So things were still pretty conservative, but even so, exorcisms were something that were not really discussed. I mean, the you know the 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 texts were out there of how to do them. But I don't think they were widely in use at the, the time. Was it the ritual ro- Romanon? Ro- Romanon. Ro- Romanon. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so hard to say that I just don't even. Try. Yeah, so I looked for it on Amazon. I was like, that's way too expensive. Easy to read, hard to say. Um, nice. But it's um, yeah. So I mean, everything was out there, but nobody was really doing it. You know, so, because so you it s- just wasn't. Everybody thought this is the thing of the past. Right. And so you, you know? mentioned like, okay, well, that's the Catholic thing that Catholics have to deal with. Right. But it was even so kind of taboo that even the, the, Catholics, the Catholics were like, didn't really uh, want to do it either because, yeah, it seemed like, you know, the superstitions of the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what that's how a lot of people saw this. Right. And that's why when we get to, you know, you get to kind of the end of the of the, of the story or this chapter of the story, I guess. And, you know, they get permission to do this. I, maybe I'm jumping ahead on you, and I'm You were sorry. jumping to the very end. I am, but I will come back to it. But even when they get to the very end and they're, they get permission to do this exorcism, um, I have questions yeah. about that. I, we'll, we'll, let's, let, I, I'm sorry, yep. I'm jumping ahead. Yep. So let's, get, let, let, let's go through your, your yep. questions. No here, worries. Though, and so. actually, I'm thinking for next time, unless this is already in your stuff, I'm going to look at, and because I, I know I've heard about this before, but I'm going to look at like once this happened or once the movie came out, I want to see about um, reported exorcisms and things in the race. Oh, no. Because I, I know after the movie came out. Is that what it was? Yeah, it, it didn't have anything to do with this because, as we'll talk about when we get to the end of this, no one knew about it. Ah, it this was all kept secret. The only it. the only information released was from Father Hughes, and that was a very brief story, and it made one newspaper. Nobody talked about it, and the church clamped down on it, wouldn't let anybody talk about it. Father Bowdern wanted to talk about it when it was over, and they wouldn't let him. Yeah, He felt it was useful that people should know that there were things like this going on out there, and they didn't want anybody to talk about it. It's interesting, because yeah. t- to me, I would think maybe this is a good PR move well, to get that's people what he into the he church. He thought it would bring people to church, yeah. and they didn't want to talk about it. I, and I, I've got ideas on why, Yeah, because I, I think that the main reason why is because this exorcism never fit all the criteria. Right. It never did. Got it. And, okay. Yeah. You um, mentioned that that's before. That's a big issue. It's an issue. It's an issue for me. Um, things will come up later that seem to imply that some of the criteria was hit, was mm-hmm. met, but I'm not convinced it ever completely right. was, which big deal. I mean, it doesn't mean he wasn't possessed. <laughs> it means they should probably change the criteria. But maybe they should legit. alter the yeah. criteria. Yeah. yeah. But I'm going by their rules. Right. You know? Well, yeah. So no, according course. to their own rules, it didn't fit. Right. Well, I mean, well, Catholic Church would never do anything out of line. Anyway, okay, right. let's uh, so let's dive in. Let's steer completely away from any of that kind of discussion. I'll talk about, about it later so, tonight. Yeah. Uh, so first off, Bishop did not think that Robbie was a troublemaker. No, when he met him and sat down with him, he didn't get the impression. And this is a guy who you know, had spent his entire career as a priest in education. I mean, he'd been a principals, a teachers, um, through his entire career. And, um, you know, I think he probably knew the kids that were trouble yeah. and the kids that weren't. And he sat and talked to him and just thought that he seemed like a pretty normal kind of backward kid. Mm-hmm. You know, loved the, you know, read comic books, kept to himself you know, didn't didn't play any kind of sports or anything. He just future very, rocket science. Yeah, he was very awkward. He was an awkward kid, 
um, but he didn't get the impression that he was trouble. I mean, right. that was, he didn't, his impression was that this, whatever was going on, and at this point he hadn't seen anything, um, whatever it was, he didn't think that Robbie was, was trying to prank anybody mm-hmm. or just causing problems. You know, he'd heard about things that had happened, but he hadn't actually seen anything at that point. Right. So Bishop shows up and he, he blesses the rooms in the house and then he does something special to the room Robbie's in. You, yeah, you kind of a, a little bit. Like well, a mini exercise? Kind of a, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, the priestly blessing is sort of a, kind of a, a exorcism light, okay. but of a place, not a person. Okay. It's just like coming in and like doing a cleansing. You know, you hear about people who do, you know, take, you know, sage and yeah. burn sage. This is the this is the Catholic version of burning sage. Got it. Um, he came in and and you know and put you know holy water over the bed and he prayed and you know and did everything that that he felt would would help. But I think there was a question of you know if if this was something around Robbie because it, it obviously wasn't the place. It was traveling. I mean, the, yeah. the bedroom was not an, an issue before Robbie got there. Um, but I think he was hoping that he could kind of shield him from whatever was happening if he was in that room. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I think it's like, well, the thing, you, you bug bomb a room, and then the yeah. bugs can't <laughs> yeah, exactly. get into the room. Exactly, and I think that was more of the point behind this because um, obviously whatever was going on, it was following Robbie. It wasn't anything that was, you know. Location-based. Yeah, it wasn't a location th- that was the issue. Right, and so he pins a relic of St. Margaret Mary, a French nun, to his pillow, to Robbie's pillow. Right. And, yeah, I remember even growing up in Catholic school, the relics were a huge, oh, it's a huge, huge deal. deal. There's one yeah. in, like, every altar. Yeah. I remember seeing the little square cut out, and they're like, oh, it's the bone of some right. rare little right. piece of it. Yeah, which is a first-class relic. Would be a right. bone or hair or something from the actual saint's body. In Regardless this case, something they touched. It was or... something that she had used. Got or it. I mean, it could have been, you know, a piece of wood because, I mean, you know, if they're going to pass these things around, it might have been a plate she used and they broke it up into tiny little pieces. Yeah. But, um, but that it was a second class relic and it, it isn't specified exactly uh, what it was, only that it was a, just a piece of material. I think it was maybe something she'd worn or mm-hmm. something. And um, but that's the kind of thing that should keep away, you know, bad mojo. Right. You know? Right. So. so he pins it to the pillow, and shit still goes crazy. Yeah, doesn't make any difference. It's not enough to. It's not enough to keep anything away. Um, so you still have all of these things going on. You know, the, the bed's moving again, the mattress is moving, things are flying around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the marks are appearing on his body again, you know, the brandings is that they started calling them, except this time it was like zigzag lines that appeared on his body. And in this particular case, you know, Father Bishop said it happened in front of all of the witnesses who were there and Robbie's hands weren't anywhere near his body when it occurred. Yeah. So, you know, he was willing to believe that it was caused either, you know, either by supernatural means or, you know, I, I have seen people who get themselves so worked up over something that they completely break out in hives. Right. It has nothing to do with any kind of allergen that's around them. They do it themselves. So it's very possible that some of that kind of stuff that was appearing on him could have been psychosomatic. I think, and you, see, you know, I mean, it's very see, possible. People see patterns and clouds likely. and everything else. Yeah, there's that know, too. Right. See what and you it, want to it see. It could have looked like words, or you know what? Maybe, maybe his mind made words. I mean, it's hard to say, but I have seen people who can get so worked up that they, you know, will just completely break out in hives. Right. You know, and it's all caused by you know their own mind. You know, 
their own anxieties. Right. And so it's very possible that, I mean, it'd be a little tougher to explain, you know, furniture flying around the room yeah. than it would be these marks on his skin. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't look at the marks on his skin as being, you know, they're, I, I, I put them into the story because they were occurring. Right. But I don't look at those as being anything that was something that you should say, oh, well, we definitely should have an exorcism because, look, these marks are appearing on him, you know. Right. Um, I, I, now, when, you know, furniture is flying around the room, uh, then I'm thinking that, okay, well, this seems to be something more going on here. You've never seen somebody you know, get so upset that just no, the couch goes flies. flying, right? Um, well, you know what? I take that back. N- wait, um, hold on. Not furniture, but there was in 96, I guess, been a long time ago, there was a woman who, and I thought I'd told you this story before. There was Maybe. a woman who contacted me because she thought her house was haunted. And a group of us went up to investigate her house. And in the end, it turned out, because I was able to direct the daughter to someone who could help her. Yeah. I did tell you this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, it was, everything was going on was happening around this girl. And it wasn't because she was possessed. It's because it was just, it was all poltergeist energy. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we literally heard someone, like, it sounded like footsteps stomping up and down the stairs upstairs. And there was no there was no one up there. The door was locked. No way to get up there. And I walked into the kitchen and saw the cabinet doors opening and closing, slamming shut. That's bizarre. Uh, for like seven, eight seconds, which doesn't seem like long, but in that situation, it's long enough. It's a lifetime, you know, yeah. it's you see it, and uh, so yeah, I mean, things like that can happen because of someone's mind. So, and again, that's that's where we're, you know, that's as this story continues to tick on, you know, things that could be explained away, you know, get to the point where it's, it gets harder and harder to explain them away as things continue. Right. But at this point, everything that's happening, you know, is they, you know, they call it uh, an obsession at this point. Yeah. The infestation was the, the, the scratching noises and stuff. But when things Mm -hmm. start actually happening to Robbie, um, they start, you know, the the priests refer it to as obsession, which right. is the next step before actual possession. Right, and I want to talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, that like you mentioned, first stage infestation, the mildest form of diabolical activity, scratching in the walls, thumping in the bed. That's what I would. Uh, I just wanted to clarify: is that like just general poltergeist yes. type activity? Yes. Right, and then it goes to obsession. Why are you so obsessed with me? Um, <laughs> subjects are tormented by a demon, but not actually infested by it. Scratches on his body. But then, so when does it make that leap to possession? Or how, well, how do they clear? How do they classify again? Though that? it's that criteria. Then, when it becomes possession, then more things happen. When you have physical objects moving around, uh, the subject is able to clairvoyantly tell you information they should not be able to know, mm. like personal information about people that they couldn't have learned in any other way other than by reading your mind. And then you also have uh, speaking in a foreign language that they've never studied. Okay. Which Robbie never did. Right. Okay, um, got at, it. At any point in the in the whole thing, even though everything else that was happening and things get a lot worse, you know, I'm spoiler alert. Right. Things are going to get in a lot worse you if you know. don't know this story. Um, but at no point does he ever speak in foreign languages. So that's why, and, and to, to get permission to do an exorcism, you're supposed to have all these different criteria Mm -hmm. that you can take to your archbishop to get permission. 
um, they got permission without having all the criteria. And I talk about that quite a bit in the book that I've always had a problem with that. Yeah. Um, not, not because, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the rule guy. I'm not the guy who's supposed to be keeping track of who's doing what. Right. But if it was, if it was supposed to be an, uh, an exorcism on the up and up, then it should have had all these things that were happening. But again, I don't make the rules and I'm certainly not uh, anyone's priest or archbishop. So it's not up to me. Uh, but it's been one of those things that's always bothered me just a little bit because they seem to be wanting to stick by the rules. Right. And now we've wandered off the path here just a bit. But that's not to say that he was or was not possessed because they didn't follow these rules. I don't know. We'll, we'll get to that. I mean, we're we're still a we're still a ways off the end of the story. So right. You know. Well, let's dive back into where we were then. Sure. So, fathers, bishop, and board Bowdern. Bowdern. Bowdern arrive and they bring two relics this time a first class relic of saint francis xavier you know i i want to yeah. i want before we get any further though yep. I, I just want to point out about father bowdern who yeah. is as it turns out by the end of this thing is over he's sort of the hero of the story okay um because this is a guy who was just sort of a i mean became a jesuit at 17 and went on you know, had this career, yeah. but I think it's when he goes into the military as a chaplain, volunteers for service during World War II, and there's a lot more to his story. I mean, I didn't put it all in here because I didn't want this to turn into a biography episode, you know, but I mean, this guy really saw horrible things, and you know, and after this story is over, and we'll, we'll talk more about that later, at the end, we'll kind of do an, what happened afterward. Where story. are they now? Where are they now story. But he ended up going to Vietnam, too, when this oh, was geez. all over. Yeah, he went to Vietnam and served as a chaplain. So, I mean, this was a guy who, you know, they always talk about him being totally fearless, and he'd seen a little Sounds of everything. Like and, I mean, this guy really was. I mean, he was something else. And, you know, during during the exorcism, and I know I'm jumping ahead of the story, but he lo he lost like 40 pounds Jeez. because of exhaustion and unable to eat. He was fasting, uh, trying to keep, you know, his mind on what he was doing and would fast and pray. And, um, you know, they would they would do this stuff at night. And during the day, he's, a, as I even mentioned here about all the stuff he had going on at the church, the reason I put that in there, the reason why they went so late is I wanted to, to make it known just how busy this guy was. He had a day job, so to speak. Yeah. Exorcist turned out to be his, you know, his side gig. Uh, but they spent the entire day taking care of his church and then would come and do, you know, work on this exorcism most of the night. You know, and later we'll get into, I mean, Father Bishop was the same way and they couldn't talk about it. Yeah. So he's got his regular job teaching at St. Louis University and Father Bowdern is, is taking care of his church. And then every night they would go do this and then get, you know, get back home at two or three o'clock in the morning and then have to get up and do it all over again. And Father Halloran, who in this story is not a priest yet, he's a student, uh, he's a Jesuit student. Um, he had classes. I mean, he was, and you heard about Father Bishop's training, how long it took him to become a Jesuit, 13 years yeah. before he's officially a priest. Well, Walter Halloran was in the middle of that when, and they grabbed him because they knew him. He was a, he was a friend, uh, you know, personal friend. 
and he was a big guy. Can you hold a cross? Yeah. Can, can, you, you, know, can, can you hold can a kid? Can you hold a kid? <laughs> yeah. Um, he was a football player, former football player, and a, and a, and a boxer. Mm-hmm. And so they needed somebody big and burly, and so they recruited him. So he would go and have to do all of his studies all day and then do this all night. Mm. And they couldn't tell anybody what they were doing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is – these guys were – I mean, they were really dedicated. I mean, nothing, I mean, they really nothing were. goes wrong if you go through trauma and you can't talk about it, right? You should yeah, be just right. Be exactly. Fine, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's crazy, and it's it's great that they you know stepped up and yeah, and they really did, did this. Um, yeah. You know, props to them. Yeah. Uh, so they so they bring a first class relic of Saint Francis Francis Xavier and a collective relic from a group of saints that were known as the North American Martyrs, uh, who were all like burned at the stake, I believe, and these were like ashes from where they were burned someone collected them and it was like a group of priests who were murdered by i believe native americans who they were probably trying to force into catholicism so right. you know but whatever yeah. anyway but that's the other thing he brought it was a glass tube i believe with ashes in it so. some of these things i just think i know just have bad so juju on them. i know um anyway so um he has the two relics and um Robbie still kind of freaks out, and then they see the sign of the cross scratched on his outer forearm. On his forearm, um, they saw they saw. I mean, they you know they heard all the noises, they heard all this stuff, and um, you know, and I guess there was a, a cross on his arm. The mattress was bouncing up and down again, right. like you know, things were moving around. And so Father Bowdern and Father Bishop then recited the rosary on opposite sides of the bed. Which did, is, did they recite the whole thing? I, I don't know. I, it's so I, long. I know. Well, and it just says that they were, you know, doing, you know, they were doing a I, I don't know. That's a, probably, I mean, oh my that would have taken a while. But the, the idea was to try to calm things down. Well, I mean, it calmed so, me down, put and the, the kid, kid to sleep. The kid was, yeah. Well, the kid was all worked up, so that's why Father Bowdern sat with him to tell him the story. Yeah. You know. And that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So, and then got things calmed down, and then they left. And they leave, and then so they left, and everything was fine for the rest of the night. Is that is that what ended up uh, no, happening? Absolutely. As no. soon as they left, yeah. as soon as they left, um, they hear crashing from upstairs, and then they run up, but there's something blocking the door, right. and they can't get in. Right. Father finally pushes his way through and find out a big ass bookshelf has been slid in front of the door, mm-hmm. and apparently this is heavy piece of furniture. Yeah, yeah, it must have been. I mean, it's not there. I mean, I've I've been to the house, so I mean, I've been to that bedroom, so mm-hmm. I know what it's like. Because you run right to the top of the stairs and hang on left, it's right there, and um, trying to get the door. It's not a huge room by any means. I mean, it's a decent sized bedroom, I guess, but um, it's not a big room. And when you've got furniture scattered all over that wasn't supposed to be, or has moved from where it was supposed to be, then you've got a problem. But yeah, with the bookcase in front of the door, he couldn't get it open, not at first. Right, and so gets in there. And uh, heavy enough that Robbie couldn't have done it. Yeah. Especially in the short amount of time that he had to do it. Right, and then so mom decides, okay, I'm going to lay down with the kid and try to, you know, calm everything down. So she feels a very heavy presence in the room, and then the bed starts to slam up and down, and she's like, fuck it, taking the kid, getting out, and they leave. Well, they went downstairs. They oh, spent the oh. night in the living room. Okay, yeah. got it. So they yeah. they, just, the they left the bedroom. They all went downstairs. Um, you know, it. she said that the, the bed began shaking and the scratching and all that stuff. And then I guess one of the relics that had been placed under Robbie's pillow missing, like, right? oh, was right. started like crawling away, which is 
you know, it's that's so a, that's cinematic. A great, that's a great movie scene yeah. right there. You know, yeah. the, the cross slithering up under the, the right. covers. You know, I, I think so. I read that and I was like, yeah. I'm not gonna put this in the notes, but it's 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 visually <laughs> yeah. it's great. Yeah, it but is. Uh, it is. And then, um, I mean, hop, skip, and a jump, I guess. But the bishop grants the exorcism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, after the next day, Robbie's cousin then goes to Father Bishop. And I'm sure it was kind of like one of those, you'll never believe what happened after you left, you know. And um, that was, I guess, from what they had already seen. And then with this now secondhand report from the family about all the stuff that had happened after they left, they realized that just, you know, reciting the rosary wasn't going to do the trick. And so they, you know, again, I and I say that there's no clear-cut information on how the decision was reached by these two yeah I mean, they must have sat down together and said oh yeah okay it looks like he's possessed so you know i guess we better see if we can get permission and and for all for all we know it might have been well let's let's go say go go see if we came to you and asked for an exorcism what would you say and apparently he said yes so that was where they decided they were going to have to get their act together and do it and the the thing about it was is that neither one of these guys had ever done this before. Mm-hmm. This was all new to both of them. Um, this wasn't something. I mean, there was nobody to train them because nobody was doing it anymore. This was something that was. Well, I shouldn't say no one. There must have been some going on out there somewhere, or you know, they wouldn't have gotten permission as easily yeah. as they had. But um, you know, it wasn't a common thing. There weren't classes for exorcisms. You know, so that didn't come. There are now, from my understanding, there there were after the early '70s because suddenly everybody wanted them. Right. Yeah. Of course. We'll we'll get to that. But, um, you know, they they didn't know what was going to happen here, and so but they got permission, and I, I imagine they did a, you know, some really crash course homework on you know what do we do now. Yeah. So. All right, so okay, so the bishop grants the exorcism, and that's where we're going to pick up uh, in Next two time. weeks for yep. St. Louis Exorcism Part 3. Well, actually, it'll be a little longer than two weeks because we'll have our Halloween episode first. Oh, and right. And then we'll be back to the exorcism in November. November? So That's a lifetime away. Yeah. Well, it seems like it right now, but it won't by the time everybody hears this. Right. So. So our next episode will be the Halloween episode. Yes. So we have our list of movies that we're going to be discussing. Only ghost films. These are not just horror films uh, because I could do 10 podcasts on just horror films. Yeah, so no, we're we, just sh- gonna we should do, sometime. We're going to do some ghost films and um, our favorites. Uh, I, I, we got a list together uh, that we want to talk about. And um, do you think maybe we should maybe – will release the list at some point in a, in advance hmm. or no i think everybody should watch them after we talk yeah. about them. yeah yeah let's let's wait we'll we'll keep it to ourselves yeah and then we'll uh, we'll talk about them on the uh, october 30th podcast yeah and uh then hopefully you'll watch them yourselves and maybe we can all discuss them yeah bit, we could do so. a recap or something yeah. and if you have suggestions you can send them to to us at american hauntings podcast Although we do have our list already well, I know, but I still like one of the Well, know but we still want movies. I still like good suggestions. Right. Yeah. So American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. I actually had a listener tell us about a movie. Um, and I kinda wanna read this quick little email. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Holly wrote in uh, talking about hereditary and then also had a film suggestion. We discussed that on a earlier podcast, hereditary. We did, right. And yeah. so she said, Love, love podcast. I spread the word, just listened to number twenty eight. I agree that hereditary was weird and creepy. Um, she told me about 
she says some things that are kind of spoilery, so I'm not going to actually oh, okay. read the yeah, email. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then she said there's a Chinese horror film I like to recommend called Dumplings. He sent hmm. me a link. I looked it up. Holly, I am not going to watch this movie. Uh, thank you, but no. Why? Just wanted to let you know. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you. Um, I'm just going to say, if you want to know what it's about, Google it. There's a Wikipedia page. I got like three, four sentences in, and I was like, nah. Um, and just, you know, I used when I was younger, I used to watch just the grossest things I could find yeah. just because. And now sure. I'm like, I'm cool. And this yeah. is, this would fall on that list. So oh, thanks, see. but no thanks. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Glad you love it. Glad you love Hereditary. And thank you for your suggestion. Um, but I'm going to pass on that one. Yeah. And I actually uh, met a buddy last night, and he said, man, my girlfriend rented this movie last night, and it was so scary. And I was like, well, what was it? And he goes, well, I'm going to have you guess. What are the three scariest movies you've seen this year? And I said, well, there's Hereditary. And he goes, that, that's, that's it. That's it, yeah. That's it. Yeah. She said she got it because she wanted to get into the fall season and didn't know what it was about. <laughs> and uh, get you there. they got a rude awakening. Yeah. I, that's on my rewatch list for October. Yeah. I like a lot of weeknights, and there's not much on, and I'm not busy so much on weeknights in October. I, I, I watch nothing but horror films. Yeah. And so – I'm going to rewatch Hereditary. I'm going to rewatch some of the stuff on my list. Although uh, the the one that's my favorite on the list, mm-hmm. that I watch that on Halloween night. Every right. year I watch that one. And it's not streaming anymore, so I had to last year I, I thought, well it had been on like Netflix or something for a long time. Yeah. And then I thought, oh well, I'll just watch it. And I like three days before found out it wasn't on there, so I had to order a Blu-ray uh, and have it. Ru- I mean, you know, dust off the Blu-ray yeah. player. I'm terrible <laughs> about that. So rush delivery. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm looking forward to watching a couple of the movies that are on your list yeah. that I haven't seen yet, and um, I have a couple of my own, and we'll cool. uh, we'll chat about it. All right, good deal. Right. All right. Well, everybody, thanks again for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, if you get a chance, spread the word. Let your friends know about the podcast. Uh, the more you pass it around, the, the, the more people we have that, that are listening. Um, and that also helps by leaving us reviews on iTunes. Even if you listen on one of the many other you know, formats that we have for the podcast, if you leave a review on iTunes, um, and we can give you the exact link that will take you right there if you need it. Um, if you leave us a review on there, it's easier for people to find, uh, which is great for us. So uh, anyway, we really appreciate it. Thanks again, and uh, we'll be back in touch for the Halloween episode in two weeks. See you soon. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday. So please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. You can find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram on Facebook at the Troy Taylor author page or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck.